Now we're going to shift very quickly to Anne Joyce, who's been part of the usness for as long as I've known her. <laughs> and we go back to a time that need not be italicized on a calendar, uh, but she was a pioneer in bringing about what is now the Middle East policy, a, a journal uh, that is unrivaled in its presentation of otherwise hard to come by descriptions and analyses and indications and trends and prognostications about the realities of the Arab world. And she'll be focusing on what remains the cardinal moral issue between our two peoples, despite its being downplayed in the media and backpedaled in the media and elsewhere, namely Palestine and Joyce. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Anthony. This is a wonderful gathering, and I um, pay tribute to you and your whole organization for being able to bring it off. No one who has ever tried to hold a meeting this big um, uh, can understand how hard it is. And so it's, it's a wonderful thing. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, uh, honored guests, for attending. Uh, I see um, His Royal Highness Prince Turkey in the front row. Welcome. Um, we have a wonderful panel, and I'm sure Jim Sogby will be coming soon. Speaking of our generation of people who have um, been toiling in this field for a long time, um, I'm not going to start with a joke. The times are too somber for that. Um, but I do want to start with a quotation from Albert Camus from 1942. He said something that's very pertinent to this panel and perhaps this whole gathering. Um, the struggle itself toward the heights is enough to fill the heart. We must imagine Sisyphus happy. We get up every day and um, start anew in a struggle that's not so easy, um, but it has its rewards. And um, the people on this um, panel on Palestine are um, young and enthusiastic, so I think you're going to hear some um, excellent reports. Um, I was going to start with Jim Zogby because of his historical knowledge, but I think we'll leap right forward to Zaha Hassan. Her bio is in your um, book. She's a visiting fellow at the Carnegie Endowment this year and has been at other prestigious think tanks too. She's a human rights lawyer who um, is also a member of the Palestine Policy Network. And um, she will be the first speaker. The second will be Elizabeth Campbell. Dr. Campbell is the Washington director of the UNRWA office um, and has, been, has served in the State Department um, in the Bureau of uh, International Organizations Affairs which I didn't know existed until I read her biography. We want to hear more about that. So let's begin with uh, Zaha Hassan. Good morning. Um, thank you to the organizers of the conference and Dr. Anthony for inviting me to share some thoughts with you today on um, the sub subject of Palestine-Israel peace. What I wanted to talk about today was the nature of the Palestinian relationship to Israel and by extension to the US. The relationship has been one defined by a series of if-onlys. If only the Arab governments and the PLO would just do one more thing or not do just one more thing, peace would reign between Arabs and Jews and they could live together and side by side in peace and security in the Middle East. The first if only came right after the Palestinian Nakba that saw the expulsion of three quarters of the indigenous uh, Arab population of Palestine. The if only at that time was, if only Israel's neighbors would sign peace agreements with Israel, then Israel might allow the Palestinian refugees to return to their homes and property. That if only came uh, from Israel's ambassador to the UN, Abba Eben, uh, during Israel's bid for UN membership in 1949. 
Since then, we've had Arab countries sign two peace agreements with Israel, and the PLO has recognized Israel on 78% of historic Palestine, but not a single Palestinian refugee has been allowed to return to Israel. And if only pursued by the US back in the 1980s was, if only the Palestinians would accept UN Security Council Resolution 242 and 338 and its land for peace formula, renounce violence, and recognize Israel, then the PLO could be a legitimate interlocutor for peace talks, and a peace agreement would be obtainable. Now, despite the PLO accepting these conditions and signing the Declaration of Principles at the White House, uh, under U.S. law, the PLO remains a terrorist organization. It's had its representative office in Washington closed this month, and the U.S. consulate, the uh, uh, office in uh, Jerusalem that handles Palestinian affairs in the occupied territories, has now been merged with the U.S. Um, embassy to Israel, signaling an end to the U.S.'s pursuit of a two-state solution. The list of if-onlys could go on and on. But the most dangerous of if-onlys of them all, the one that the world, and especially the US, must stand firmly against, um, given the current realities that we are faced with today, um, I, will just, I will talk about. Because if we don't stand firmly against this, we are damning the entire um, region to a The came after the failure of um, the Camp David talk sponsored by Pre uh, President Clinton. Recall back in September 2000, just after the anniversary of the Sovereign Shatila massacre, the architect of those mass killings, Ariel Sharon, decided to take a few hundred Israeli police and some members of the Knesset for a visit to Al Haram Sharif Mosque compound for what he just said was a simple visit. Sharon was trying to make a point at that time. He was, you know, going to be a candidate for the Israeli prime ministership, and he wanted to, to uh, show everyone that he was going to be the prime minister of Israel that would never compromise on Jerusalem. Predictably, the incendiary presence of Sharon led to mass protests in the occupied territories, resulting in the use of disproportionate force by the Israeli military and the killing of dozens of unarmed Palestinians. In protest over those killings, the Palestinian citizens of Israel staged their own demonstrations inside Israel in October. The result of those protests was the killing of 13 unarmed Palestinian citizens of Israel by Israeli civilian police. An independent Israeli commission was established to investigate those October killings. It took them five years to, to get to a result, but ultimately what the commission found was that the 13 protesters were in fact unarmed and they posed no threat to the Israeli police when they were gunned down. Now despite those damning findings, those responsible for those killings were never held to account, and the internal police investigation file was closed, as was the file of the Israeli Attorney General. Now, this was a watershed moment for the Palestinian citizens of Israel. They had determined that the laws and structures of government were such in Israel that Palestinian citizens um, were never going to get justice under the law and were never going to get equal treatment under the law. Therefore, the leadership and the intelligentsia of the Palestinian community inside Israel came together for a series of meetings that took, um, was over a course of two years. And what, they, um, what culminated from those meetings was in the year 2007, a paper called the Future Vision Document. Now this document called for a number of things, including that the state of Israel recognized the uh, indigeneity of the Palestinian Arab citizens and um, extend equal rights for all under, under a constitution. Now, parallel to this vision document was the preparation of a constitution for Israel, which called for Israel to declare its borders uh, based on the pre-June uh, 1967 line and end the occupation of Arab lands. It included an equal rights provision, and it included the right of return for refugees and restitution. Now, the response by the Israeli government at that time came just a few months later. It was the eve of the Annapolis uh, talks between Ahud Omar and Mahmoud Abbas. 
And Omar, at that time, in 2007, made a new demand on the Palestinians. And that demand was that the PLO must recognize Israel as a Jewish state if there is to be any comprehensive agreement to end the conflict. Now, most people believed at that time that this new demand was an attempt to foreclose the possibility that Palestinian refugees would be allowed to return to Israel. But it was, that was only part of the story. Omert's demand was meant to silence the Palestinian citizens of Israel who were calling for equality and restorative justice. Also not understood at that time was the critical impact, uh, as another critical impact of Omert's demand, which was how recognition of Israel as a Jewish state might also undermine Palestinian demands for sovereignty and statehood. But I will come back to that a little bit later. So when the peace talks with Olmert ended because of his indictment on corruption and Benjamin Netanyahu succeeded him as prime minister in 2009, Netanyahu seized on this demand for Palestinian recognition of Israel as a Jewish state and made it a precondition, another new if only. It came in his famous Bar Ilan speech in June 2009 in which Netanyahu appeared to accept the two-state solution. He said, quote, the fundamental condition for ending the conflict is the public, binding, and sincere Palestinian recognition of Israel as the national homeland of the Jewish people. Netanyahu said that he told President Obama, quote, if Palestinians recognize Israel as the Jewish state, Israelis would be ready to agree to a real peace agreement. Now, Obama succumbed to Netanyahu's demand two years later after unsuccessfully trying to rein in Israeli settlement construction in the West Bank. In his May 2011 speech, Obama included Palestinian recognition of Israel as a Jewish state as a new U.S. parameter for Israeli-Palestinian peace. Obama said, quote, what America and the international community can do is to state frankly what everyone knows. A lasting peace will involve two states for two peoples, Israel as a Jewish, Jewish state and a homeland of the Jewish people, and the state of Palestine as the homeland of the Palestinian people, each state enjoying self-determination, mutual recognition, and peace." Unquote. Mutual recognition wasn't simply recognition of political borders to Obama, but the recognition of the identity of the people within those borders. What Obama overlooked, however, was the identity, was the fact that 20% of the population of Israel was not Jewish and what that recognition would mean for, those, for their rights. And in December 2016, Secretary of State John Kerry, during his outgoing speech on Israel-Palestine peace, reiterated Obama's words. He based the two states for two peoples formula on UN General Assembly Resolution 181, the partition plan, which recommended the creation of a Jewish and Arab state. Secretary Kerry claimed that, quote, recognition of Israel as a Jewish state has been a U.S. position for years, unquote, though it ha that had only been true for the last five years of President Obama's administration. Now, despite what Secretary Kerry outlined in his speech, the partition plan never demanded that Palestinian Arabs recognize Israel as a Jewish state. After all, Palestinian Arabs would have been almost equal in number to the Jewish population inside the territory allotted for, for a Jewish state. What the partition plan did require was that each state uphold democratic principles and protect the civil and political rights of all the citizens under law. Forced population transfer to alter the demographic makeup of either the Arab or the Jewish state <coughs> was specifically prohibited. And yet this is exactly what the pre-state Israeli government and the state of Israel did in the period immediately before and after the state of Israel was declared in May 1948. And since Israel occupied the remainder of historic Palestine in 1967, population transfer and settlement construction has continued inside the occupied territories. Now with this context, we can fully appreciate the significance of Israel's recent passage of the Jewish nation state basic law and what Palestinian international recognition of Israel as a Jewish state would mean today. I want to focus on three provisions of the basic uh, law that Israel passed and how they function together. 
<clears throat> excuse me, uh, the first provision states that only Jewish people have an exclusive right to national self-determination in the state of Israel. This means Palestinian citizens do not have a legal right to citizenship inside Israel, though they are the indigenous people of the land. A second provision states that the Jewish people's historic homeland is the land of Israel. Israel has never defined its borders as a state, and the idea of a Jewish homeland is not defined in the basic law. Therefore, the area which Jewish people may assert their exclusive rights for national self-determination has no limit. A third provision encourages and promotes the establishment of and consolidation of Jewish settlement without identifying where that settlement is to take place and how it is to be consolidated. So long as Israel leaves its borders undefined and fails to guarantee equality under the law for all of its citizens, these three provisions read together provide constitutional authority for the complete displacement of Palestinian Arabs from historic Palestine and or the denial of their equal rights under law. Thus, not only are Palestinian second or third class citizens of the state of Israel whose citizenship could be revoked, okay, and not only are Palestinian refugees not entitled uh, to return to Israel or restitution of their property, but even those Palestinians living in the occupied territories are not entitled to self-determination in a separate state or as citizens of Israel. This is because the land of Israel is the historic homeland of the Jewish people without regard to the claims of any others. So had Palestinians uh, succumbed to Israeli and US pressure to uh, recognize Israel as a Jewish state as part of the relaunch of peace talks back in 2014, the Palestinian leadership would have conceded the entirety of historic of their historic homeland to Israeli Jewish colonization and settlement, as well as validated ethno-religious discrimination against Palestinian citizens and refugees. Now, according to the Trump campaign position paper prepared by Jason Greenblatt, the President's Special Advisor on International Negotiations, and David Friedman, the US Ambassador to Israel, one of the reasons why the Trump administration will not support Palestinian statehood is because Palestinians still will not agree to recognize Israel as a Jewish state. The position paper ought to be taken seriously because every action item in that position paper has been achieved by uh, the Trump administration. The lesson of all this history is that there is no if only that Palestinians could ever uh, could ever uh, respond to that would satisfy Israel as long as Israel ha is intent on a greater Israel. I was asked to end with some policy recommendations. I have two quick ones. The first is that the US should not be in the business of recognizing ethno-nationalism and ethno-supremacy in other countries and not in our own as well. Recognition of Israel as a Jewish state should not be a US parameter and we should end uh, and take this out of the US vision of what a peace between Israelis and Palestinians would look like, because it would mean Palestinians accepting indefinite occupation and denial of their basic rights. Second, it is long overdue in the US for us to go back to the basics. The basics are international law and precedent on this issue. That means an end to occupation, restorative justice, and equal rights, uh, regardless of one's nationality. Only then will Israeli uh, Jews and Palestinians uh, have equal dignity. Thank you. Thank you very much, Saha. You're next, uh, Elizabeth Campbell. And Dr. Zogby is here. He'll tie up the loose ends after these two have spoken. <coughs> and may I say, anyone who has questions, that's what those little cards are for. So. Come forward. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Anthony. Thank you. Um, it's really a deep pleasure to be on this esteemed uh, panel. Um, it's been quite a year uh, for UNRWA, the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East. This year, um, we have experienced what it means to have upended uh, 70 years of bipartisan agreement on the approach to UNRWA. By which I mean the United States, as I'm sure most of you are well aware, uh, decided formally on August 31st uh, to no longer fund uh, UNRWA, um, having long been our largest, uh, most prominent 
donor, constituting 30% of our, our total budget. Um, in the statement that the U.S. drafted publicly um, announcing its decision, among other things, it noted that UNRWA is irredeemably flawed. <laughs> um, beyond that, uh, we haven't yet received uh, clarification um, about exactly what the U.S. Uh, means by that. I think most of you know a lot about UNRWA or have heard the acronym over the years. But few people realize the scale and scope of our operations. UNRWA today is responsible for educating more than 525,000 students across Gaza, West Bank, Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. If you took that school system and put it in the United States, it would be the third largest after New York and Los Angeles. Indeed, it's a very sizable uh, public institution. We also provide primary health care for um, about three and a half million refugees who rely on our services. We run 142 health clinics. And the third pillar of our work is the provision of humanitarian assistance for the most vulnerable families in these five areas. Today, we provide almost two million families emergency food and cash relief. That includes half of the population in Gaza. Today, two-thirds of the total population living in Gaza rely on UNRWA for education, health care, and increasingly also a source of livelihood. <coughs> Excuse me. So, so the scale and scope of what we do is quite extraordinary. And let me be very clear. There is absolutely no alternative in the United Nations system, in the international non-governmental organization community, or at present by any government to UNRWA. There is no alternative. If the idea is that UNRWA has run its course and there needs to be a new paradigm uh, in the Middle East, that's fine. <laughs> We're willing to figure out whatever political solution may be advanced. But to our knowledge, there is currently no solution that would allow for the sustainable transfer of these essential public services um, that have proven to uh, provide excellent quality services over several decades. And that is a very dangerous situation. At risk is quite a lot. Um, and if we're not able to secure the funding that we need to continue, we are looking at what I would argue is going to be a very um, uh, <laughs> um, unknown or almost sort of, it will be um, catastrophic, obviously, to the families. But the long-term security implications of all of this um, will be extraordinary. Indeed, really, what we would be facing is a de-development uh, across the Middle East. One of the things that, in my view, is extraordinary about UNRWA is that it has somehow miraculously been able to contribute to the development of a people who, as we all know, are without a state. That is actually, I believe, unmatched in modern recent history. It is rare to find an example like that. In our education system, maybe some of you may have benefited from UNRWA education, uh, from UNRWA schools. According to the World Bank, our students are outperforming their national counterparts by one year of learning. So we don't just run schools, but they're truly centers of excellence. <coughs> Excuse me. Same with our health clinics. We've long achieved 100% um, vaccination rate. So when I ask senior officials here in Washington, what's the plan? Just let's be very concrete. If UNRWA doesn't exist tomorrow, as is the intention um, by many senior members of the current administration, very concretely, who will vaccinate the children? It is in the interests of everybody living in the region to continue a program like that. Um, we are also very proud of our achievement that since the 1960s, 50% of all of the children in our schools are girls. That's very important. And despite many different kinds of challenges, very concretely, if tomorrow UNRWA is not providing civilian secular education to more than half a million children in these five areas, very concretely, who will be doing that? Who will be doing that? 
It's really important to remember, and I appreciate listening to Zaha's uh, history, that UNRWA's headquarters were once located in Vienna. We moved them at the beginning of the Oslo peace process to Jerusalem and Amman with the aim, very clearly, of being part of that ongoing process that would lead to, eventually, um, the elimination of UNRWA, right? The idea that there would be some type of uh, just and lasting solution to the refugee question and that UNRWA would dissolve and that there would be a way for um, uh, of course, the Palestinian Authority, but others to take over responsibility. We obviously are still sitting in the region uh, very much looking <laughs> for a political solution. UNRWA's job has always been and will continue to be to maintain the political space necessary for a just and lasting solution. We are providing education and health care and emergency relief services and keeping that space open until that time comes. So we are obviously deeply, deeply concerned, um, not only about the lack of funding, which has created a tremendous amount of instability and general insecurity um, in our institutions and for the colleagues with whom we work in our various fields of operation, but also more broadly on the growing political attacks against our mandate and our existence, which you can read very freely about in the media. We've been written about a lot. You can also read about it in legislation that has now been introduced uh, in the House and in the Senate. And a lot of those attacks rest on this false uh, premise that UNRWA is very unique in the UN system and in fact in the world because, as the argument goes, it's the only agency that allows refugees to pass status to descendants, thereby artificially inflating the total numbers of refugees therefore making UNRWA uh, a corrupt organization. This is the basic argument that has been put forward, and again, you can find uh, it um, uh, throughout the media and also in this legislation. I want to be very clear that UNRWA is not unique in this regard. Um, the, uh, the only other UN agency that is also responsible for refugees, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, um, also uh, exercises practices globally where all refugees pass status to their children and their children's children until there is a just and lasting political solution to that particular refugee problem. So this, this uh, sort of set of alternative facts that are being actively advanced um, really are undermining our ability to deliver services effectively and has us deeply concerned about what will happen uh, in the near term. If I may just say something about fundraising, as I noted, the US historically provided 30% of our funding. And indeed, uh, UNRWA experienced 70 years of bipartisan financial and political support for the work that we have done. To wake up suddenly, um, early in January, to learn that that funding has been frozen um, on the heels of conversations that our Commissioner General had had here in Washington with senior officials, during which uh, it was explained in great detail that our work was appreciated and valued and would continue, on the heels of having signed an agreement with the U.S. State Department about continued funding in 2018, it was shocking. Nevertheless, uh, we had no choice but to find a way forward, and we have been largely successful, thanks very much to uh, other governments and trying to recover some of those resources through other uh, donations. We are nevertheless running a deficit still this year of about $64 million. Each month, my colleagues are really scraping together um, every little bit of funding that we can to, uh, for our payroll, which you may be aware are largely Palestine refugees themselves. Our organization directly implements all of the work that we do. We have 33,000 uh, staff across the region. So our situation remains extremely tenuous, very insecure. No one knows really what tomorrow will bring. Um, and again, as I said, it's an extremely dangerous moment, not least uh, for the families who are living and experiencing this turbulence, not knowing whether or not they will have schools to which they can send their children or places where they can receive medicine. I, I really do not want to... Um, I, I just really, truly want to underscore the, the significance of what's happening. 
uh, in this regard and to, to really raise everyone's awareness about the risks involved. UNRWA would be very pleased to participate in any political, just and lasting political solution for the refugee question. It's not, a, it's not about us continuing the status quo as we're often accused of or, or existing uh, forever. Our job is to provide these services, which are essential for these families who have no other place to turn for, for education and for healthcare and emergency relief. That is our commitment. Our colleagues are working under extraordinary circumstances to do this um, in a very uncertain political environment. We have never before in our history been tested in the way in which we are currently being tested. Um, but maybe if I could just also end, as Zaha did, with a couple of policy recommendations, it is in the interests of everyone <laughs> to continue to fund these vital services um, until there is some type of alternative. Um, and therefore, clearly, the, 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 the policy recommendation is for the United States to restore its funding, for other governments to step up to continue funding. Uh, and then the second piece relates um, more to some of the politics that I mentioned. Next year, in the UN General Assembly, from where uh, UNRWA receives its mandate to operate, we will be, um, our mandate is up for renewal. And there, too, it's going to be very important that member states come together to, again, renew this mandate, indeed, until there is some type of genuine, lasting, just solution. Um, if not, it's, again, very hard to imagine the kinds of implications um, that will bring uh, to the region. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, I'll turn the podium now over to Dr. Zakbe. Uh, who is an old-timer like John and me. I think he started the whole movement of um, what to do about Palestine here in Washington. An old-timer, I like that. I feel it, too. Um, I actually want to um, frame my remarks uh, around the, my last 50 years of involvement on this issue, uh, beginning, uh, actually not quite 50 already, I lied, it's 47. Uh, it, my first experience was in the camps in Lebanon doing dissertation research uh, in 1971. Um, and following then uh, all the way up through the post-Oslo period when I ran a project with Vice President Gore um, to try to promote economic uh, development in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, and spent four years doing that uh, to, the, to the present time. I have what I want to offer uh, are three heresies, uh, three observations that I've made um, in, in the last several years that are informed by the experience of my many decades doing this. The first, the first one I want to offer is um, based on what I see developing uh, right now, which is a, 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 an incremental movement toward normalization. Um, inspired by the Trump administration, and promoted by the Trump administration, but also encouraged by Israel, and the belief that some have that uh, promoting incremental normalization somehow moves the ball forward toward a just resolution. My experience is exactly the opposite. I remember in the post-Madrid, in the pre-Madrid period, uh, the argument was made, um, and I actually advocated that argument. Working with John, we had prepared a paper on strategic peace incentives that we thought would be a way to create incremental movement. Uh, and uh, in fact, what happened was the, the Arab states did agree to suspend the secondary boycott of Israel. Um, the condition was suspend the secondary boycott and Israel would agree to free settlements. Once the secondary boycott was ended, there was no turning back. Israel, on the other hand, did turn back and within a short period of time, uh, settlement activity began anew. I remember my first trip 
with the, with the group that Vice President Gore had launched called Builders for Peace. Um, I traveled to um, uh, Israel and Palestine with a delegation of Arab and Jewish businessmen. I remember when we were driving past Tel Aviv, one of the Jewish businessmen said, I haven't been here in three years. What an enormous difference as he was looking at the skyline and the lights of the neon lights of the different businesses, different companies that were there. A lot of Japanese and Korean companies that had begun to invest because the secondary boycott was over. Um, once they invested, once they built, once they uh, had planted roots, they weren't going anywhere. But settlements continued to be built. And as we see now in, in the Madrid period, there were some 120,000 settlers. Uh, and today, there's 650,000 settlers. Um, the, the, the effort to try to move Israel toward feeling more secure and accepted didn't pay off. In fact, it did the opposite and emboldened them. I remember one of the things that came out of Oslo was a, um, a movement toward uh, bringing the region together for economic investment purposes. And we had the first summit in Casablanca. Uh, the Israelis were quite comical there. I mean, if they saw anyone in a thawb, they made a mad dash to get a picture taken. It was like, you know, we're here. And it, there were, it was the period before selfies, but nevertheless, it was the, the sort of the equivalent of a selfie. They duck in and somebody would take a picture of them standing next to an Arab. Um, they were excited about it, and, and rightly so, one would say, because they had been not able to do business in the Arab world, and there they were. But the point of Casablanca wasn't for the Israelis to do business in the Arab world. It was for to create an international effort to help grow the economy of the West Bank and Gaza to support the peace process. It was to create a mutually beneficial economic environment for Israelis and Palestinians. Here's what happened. Israel benefited. The Palestinians didn't because the next economic summit took place in Jordan. And guess what? I went with the American delegation. Arabs came from all over the region, as they had done to Casablanca. There was one group of businessmen who weren't there, and that was the Palestinians, because the Israelis refused to open the border to allow them to cross. And so infuriated as we were, I mean, the argument that we made was that the Palestinians at Oslo had opened the door. Israel went through and closed it behind them. Uh, Perez spoke at the summit. The Arabs were nowhere to be found. The businessmen were not allowed to come. We then had the, made the decision that we would bring, as an American delegation of Jewish and Arab businessmen, we would make the effort to do the meeting in Jerusalem. And so we did. We had the Israeli team there. We had the American business team there. Representatives of the American embassy was there. No Palestinian businessmen. We got a note halfway through the meeting as we were had we continued without them, uh, saying that they were at the checkpoint and they had no permits to get through and the Israeli soldiers wouldn't let them through. The effort to open the Arab world to Israel did not pay off in terms of support for any movement toward peace. From the very beginning, Israel wanted normalization. They wanted to skip to the end of the Arab Peace Initiative and dump everything in between. And that, I'm afraid, is still where we are today. Every move toward normalization is pocketed with nothing coming back in return. And so my sense is that we need to be very clear that normalization, not because one wants to reject the existence of Israel, it exists. It, I mean, the, the, the foreign minister of, uh, of Oman, the minister of state for foreign affairs, is right. It's a state. It exists in the region. But the reality is that doing business with it or accepting it as a normal state in the region doesn't help move forward um, the effort toward peace. The second heresy is... Um, I don't think that, I think we need to be real about ourselves. There is no two-state solution at all that's possible. It's not going to happen, and I think we need to accept it and deal with the consequences of it. There is no way to look at the West Bank today and figure out how you create a viable Palestinian state um, that can exist under the conditions that, that are currently there. 
the settlers are not just settlers. Many of them are ideological settlers, armed to the teeth, and the daily reports of violence against uh, Palestinian um, uh, agriculture, Palestinian villages, uh, Palestinian children on their way to school is, is really quite significant, unreported. Uh, an Israeli is attacked, it becomes news, a Palestinian is attacked, or his orchards are cut down, or his vineyards are uprooted. It's not a story at all. So it's not something we know about. If you, the plan for design of the Israeli occupation in the West Bank has mirrored their plan for what they did in Israel proper. They confiscated land around the settled areas. They built settlements in the Galilee, for example. Nazareth was completely cut off from its agricultural lands. They created, the term the Israelis used was they created landless peasants. They took people whose settlement, that is to say whose agricultural and family-owned lands were outside of the village, there was a collective ownership. They didn't live in individual small farms as they do in upstate New York. They lived in a concentrated area and they farmed the lands outside of it. What Israel did was seize the lands, either declare them state lands or declare them security zones, and then began to build around it. So Nazareth elite built on Nazareth land um, is, on, it, Palestinians can't live there. They can't be there. Some have now come to live there, but the issue is that was the, the design was to steal the land so that the, they would be uprooted from their economic, uh, their economic source of wealth. The same has happened in the West Bank. It's not by accident that when you look up close at the maps of the West Bank, you see a lot of little circles. Those little circles are where the villages are, and around the villages are state land or settlements. If you go to Jerusalem, you see it most clearly because you see these little Palestinian villages surrounded by massive Israeli concrete uh, uh, housing projects which are built on Palestinian land. Uh, Bethlehem has lost most of its land to the north of it to Israeli settlements. Har Hamah was, was Bethlehem land. Um, it was a green zone declared by the military. They then converted the green zone into a security zone and then converted it into a settlement. Bill Clinton said, no, don't. They did. It's there. Who's going to uproot it? Who's going to make it possible for the organic relationship between Bethlehem and Jerusalem to be restored? It's not going to happen. The sooner we deal with the reality of it and stop absolving ourselves of responsibility by saying, oh, I support a two-state solution. Politicians now say, oh, I support a two-state solution, as if somehow that makes them feel good about the fact that they want peace. It's not going to happen. By saying it doesn't get you off the hook. The demand today should not be for two states, but it should be for equality, for justice, for human rights of both peoples. Palestinians are existing today in what is, in fact, an apartheid state. It's not going to be an apartheid state. It is an apartheid state. The majority of the people who live between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean are now Palestinian Arabs, and they are denied equal rights. They are denied justice. They are denied human rights. That is unacceptable, and we need to recalibrate how we approach this issue based on that reality. And the third point I want to make has to do with recognizing the significance of the leadership of the Palestinian community inside Israel, the citizens of Israel. I remember when I was first doing my dissertation, I was dealing with what we called revitalization movements, how societies under stress react by developing new consciousness. Um, I worked with African American movements. I'd done some work with Native American movements here in the States. And so one of my advisors said, why don't you work with Palestinians? They certainly are under stress. Try to see what's happening in development of a new idea movement among them. So off I went to Lebanon to the refugee camps and I sat down with people and collected their stories and filled notebooks of stories of people. And then I met Hassan Kanafani, a Palestinian novelist, who was talking to me about the project. And he said, you're in the wrong place. He said, the people in the camps have not developed new consciousness. They've frozen old consciousness. It's the logic of being a refugee where you um, develop an idea 
of the past as somehow romanticized. And so they were living in the 1930s and 40s believing that that was somehow the Palestine they wanted to create. He said, the place you need to go is to look at the Arab citizens of Israel. That's where new consciousness is developing. And so I went and I found Mahmoud Darwish and Tawfiq Zayed and, and the, the, this group of poets who had developed a remarkable new sense of what it meant to be Palestinian. Um, and they, were, they had been decapitated by the 1948 war. Most of the leadership had gone. Uh, they were, as I said, landless peasants. They were struggling to survive. But in a period of time, they had developed a national movement. Israel had expelled then the leaders of that movement. And so they continued to rebuild. And as Zaha, I walked in when Zaha was talking about Land Day, I mean, the significance of that, a nationwide movement of of, of basically what amounted to civil disobedience was really amazing. Uh, when Tawfiq Zayed was elected mayor of Nazareth, uh, Yitzhak Rabin said, if you elect him, we'll cut off your aid. They cut off the aid. So what did Tawfiq Zayed do? He turned to the international community and brought youth brigades to Nazareth to do the road construction and the cleanup and all of the projects that would no longer be done by state funds. He got them done in a different way. And you look at the joint list today and the significance of this body sitting in the Knesset as what amounts to the largest group in the opposition, the second largest group in the opposition, is of enormous consequence. If the joint list can increase its number from 13 to 15, that is to say just a small percentage of increase in the vote, it will be impossible to form an Israeli government without somehow dealing with the importance of the Arab bloc in Israel. They're 20% of the population, but they represent a significant political force that needs to be understood and encouraged. Arabs should no longer ignore the significance of this group. And I don't think Palestinians should ignore it either. The, the leadership in Ramallah has become bankrupt. It is, it is ossified and it is no longer capable of, of, I think, providing a vision for the future. The leadership in Gaza is worse. I think the real leadership right now is coming from this group, which I think can play a significant role and needs to be recognized um, as, as such. What policy recommendations I have? None. I, I, I really believe that where we are here in America today is in a very different place than we've ever been before. I do not think anything will pass new through Congress. I think we're going to get a very new Congress. There's some really remarkable people. But the changes that are going to take place in America are going to somehow lag the changes that are taking place in the region. We're not going to lead. But what we are going to do is get a new group in Congress that reflects a new public opinion that despite the difficulties coming from the administration, despite the difficulties coming from pro-Israel groups that are going to try to silence them, are going to make some real changes. I think UNRWA is going to get its funding back when the new Congress begins to sit. I think there's going to be pressure to do that. And I think you should actually listen to what, uh, what she has to say. Elizabeth is a remarkable person doing a remarkable and very needed job. Um, at, at a critical time for the Palestinians and for humanity. It is not just, as you note, a problem for Palestinians. It's a problem for the region. I mean, you cannot trade Palestine for Lebanon and Jordan. The consequences for stability in Lebanon and stability in Jordan are enormous if UNRWA folds and, has no, and there's no way for the states in the region to deal with it. So I think we're in a real difficult situation that requires a, a, a need to recalibrate. It does not require normalization. Um, it, it means that we're, we, we have to stop thinking about two states and we have to start thinking about different visions for the future. How do we create a different reality in the Middle East that provides for the security of Israel and the Israelis and security for Palestinians and creates a new vision for the future? in which they exist as equals with human rights and human dignity for both. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, as they say, problems like this are never solved. You only trade up for better problems. And uh, I'd like to give the um, two first uh, speakers a chance to uh, say something um, about the, this question of um, whether to um, 
um, what shall I say, abandon some of these international law um, precepts or gains that have been made by the Palestinians um, and go for uh, a so-called um, one state shared by the two peoples. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to give up the gains that um, people have made in favor of international law. Anybody want to speak to that? I think we are well beyond issues of political solutions at this time. And I, I think if you ask Palestinians on the ground, uh, especially given that 70% of Palestinians are 30 years of age or younger, they're not interested in this idea of two states anyway. They don't see that they're giving up something for an uncertain future. They, their future is already uncertain. They already uh, are living under um, uh, incredible deprivation and uh, access and movement restrictions and no future in terms of, you know, what to do with themselves following uh, college education. They don't have a vision for what their future could be. So to talk about political solutions to them is, is a non-starter and, and they don't really care about that. Uh, what they're interested in, however, is rights. Mm -hmm. in whatever kind of state that might be, whether it's a Palestinian state or an Israeli state or a confederation of states, they just want to be able to live. Um, so the idea that they'd be giving up something, giving up gains made um, with Oslo is something they don't understand because they don't see any gains that, that were made um, from Oslo. Would you like Look, what I would say again is that when you think of UNRWA, just think of institutions, right? We have built institutions over 70 years, and they're extraordinary institutions, and they're institutions that represent extraordinary development achievements across the region. Um, we have sadly seen what it means in the Middle East to destroy secular institutions of higher education, um, of, uh, re, you know, related to human health, whatever. So when you think of UNRWA, think of your, these institutions. And when people tell you, oh, UNRWA must go because they start giving you a political argument about whether refugees do or don't exist or should or shouldn't exist, remember, UNRWA is our institutions. And until there is a way for an other entity to run these institutions, it's deeply dangerous, absent any type of solution, to talk about destroying UNRWA. UNRWA are development and humanitarian institutions. Um, and I mean, I agree with my colleagues who, to whom I completely defer on the policy and political angles, but there is nothing on the horizon <laughs> that leads any of us in UNRWA to think that now is the time to, to, to close our, our doors. Okay, maybe I'll get up. Um, I've given Dr. Zogby two questions, um, if he would yeah. like to address them. The question is, what are the implications of Netanyahu and Abbas meeting with Sultan Qaboos, and what about Israeli ministers visiting Abu Dhabi? Um, first of all, the, the Omanis play an interesting role in the, in the region. They're neither here nor there. Um, they're part of the GCC. Um, but they do not side in any one camp. They were the, the instrumental group in beginning the negotiations uh, with the U.S. and Iran. Uh, none of us knew about it until it happened. Um, they have uh, relations with uh, the, the Saudis. They have relations with the Emiratis. They also have relations with Qatar. Um, and, um, and, and they continue to have relations with Iran. And so. I frankly don't understand, I don't know what happened, but there may be a game afoot, um, and we will find out where that goes. I unfortunately am of the opinion that um, uh, meeting with Netanyahu accomplishes very little. Um, I, this is not a leader who wants to compromise, has the capacity to compromise, doesn't understand, I don't think, the meaning of the word. Um, the, the why agreement that Bill Clinton you know, patted himself on the back for accomplishing, I got him to sign an agreement, has been absolutely devastating for the Palestinians. What's happening in Hebron today 
um, and the expansion of the settlements. You have a pack van in Hebron. You have a city with a wedge cut out in the middle, which was the heart of the city. I mean, it's imagine taking Washington, D.C., um, I was going to say, and knocking K Street out. A lot of people around the country might like that. But, okay, take Connecticut Ave out, and what would you get? I mean, how would the city even be functional? And Hebron is not functional because of what happened there. That was an agreement that Netanyahu made that secured his gains and didn't secure gains for Palestinians. It basically encapsulated them in these cantons, um, and that was what uh, that was what uh, what, what actually happened. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what uh, uh, Sultan Qaboos is, uh, is doing, but um, again, they've done things in the past, and we'll see where that goes. With regard to the Israeli ministers visiting uh, Abu Dhabi, you know, uh, the, the Emiratis have uh, been gaining an a, a international role for themselves um, in everything from sports to um, um, nuclear, I'm sorry, to um, 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 what's the um, a, a, a renewable energy? Um, one of the conditions of having these um, uh, either events take place in their country or be the headquarters for the uh, the renewable energy, uh, the, the United Nations uh, office on that, uh, is that they have to accept all countries uh, who are participants. And so I didn't make a whole lot of Miri Regev. Uh, going uh, for this uh, sports competition. Um, either Abu Dhabi has the sports competition or it forsakes. It would, it would allow, uh, instead of um, boycotting Israel, it would mean that Arab countries are uh, being boycotted by international events and international organizations by not agreeing to have one nation participate in those events. And so, um, I, I, you know, to me, it's the, it's the consequence of of, of gaining an international profile and international leadership in, in different areas. Um, so I don't, I don't make a, a whole lot of that. It's, it's very different than um, welcoming uh, uh, an Israeli uh, office to open in their country or beginning to do overt trade relations with, uh, with the, the, the state of Israel. That's a very different thing. And in polling that we've done, we find that there simply is no acceptance on the part of Arab public opinion for any forms of, of these uh, efforts at normalization. So there may be back channels that open here or there, or there may be conversations that occur over issues of, of, of regional security. They do not amount to normalization precisely because you will not have any overt movement in that direction from most Arab countries uh, because it simply is too risky. Uh, in terms of their own publics and in terms of stability to do it. And you know, if, 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 if the, the fear is Iran and the fear is uh, extremism, one of the best uh, ways you can give Iran and extremist groups um, uh, leverage over you uh, is by doing something that so violates what is in fact the accepted opinion in, in all of these countries and that is making overt gestures uh, to Israel, bringing them uh, to the table uh, and doing you know, overtly business with them. That is, that is something that is not going to happen anytime soon, and it's smart that it not happen. What are the, here's a question from the floor. What are the implications of uh, the Trump administration and the Israeli, Israeli government both embracing far-right political movements around the globe? Um, would anyone like to... Sure. Comment on that? Yeah. Uh, <coughs> Biden didn't have as much time. It's fine for you to hold forth on these questions, these Here, cosmic matters. Here's, here's I think, the, the, the problem. Um, uh, there's an effort in Congress right now to pass a bill, the uh, Anti-Semitism Awareness Act. Um, it is attempting to do in law what um, um, groups like the ADL and others have been pushing for decades. Uh, to define a new anti-Semitism, which amounts to criticism of Israel, um, what they call unwarranted criticism of Israel, which I think is very warranted. Um, but in any case, the opposite side of that 
is to absolve people who are anti-Semites because they're supporters of Israel. I remember back in the Nixon administration, um, Nixon and some of his generals had made outrageously anti-Israel comments, but they got a pass because they were strong supporters of Israel and gave it weapons and gave it all the political defense it needed when it got engaged in conflicts in the Arab world. And so I used to call them anti-Semites for Israel. We're seeing a sort of a rebirth of that in a, in a more dramatic way. These far-right countries, um, uh, Hungary, for example, far-right governments, um, have, have made outrageous anti-Semitic comments, but they get a pass because they're pro-Israel. Jeremy Corbyn, who's supportive of Palestinians, is called an anti-Semite because he's critical of Israel. Meanwhile, the far right in Great Britain gets a pass because it's strongly supportive of Israel. People in the White House, in the Trump administration, um, have associated themselves with the very far right groups that have had a record of anti-Semitism. They get a pass because they're pro-Israel. And so I, I think that it is not just worrisome, and it should just be worrisome to our side, it should be worrisome to the Jewish community that the very people who are getting a pass for being anti-Semites because they're pro-Israel are the people who pose the greatest danger at this point. And the idea that you can somehow legislate um, a new definition of anti-Semitism based on not being critical of Israel feeds into that. It's the other side of, of that coin, and I think it's, uh, it's, it's quite worrisome. Perhaps uh, the other two speakers can um, think about this. Um, what is the role of uh, Russia in supporting Palestine today, in supporting UNWA or in any other way? Yeah, I, I don't think that Russia provides any financial support to UNRWA. They tend to be quite vocal about their support of us in the Security Council, um, but that hasn't translated uh, to us financially. I just want to add um, a little bit to what um, Jim said about uh, the sort of association of ethno-nationalism um, with uh, support for Israel in the US. Um, I also see it as an opportunity now because you know, the Trump administration has aligned itself with this, with these ethno-nationalist uh, movements across the globe, and in, including, you know, uh, ethno-supremacy in the U.S. in a very sort of uh, nod and wink sort of way in the U.S., but it, you know, full-throated embracing it uh, around the world. And and these are the same countries that that Netanyahu has has also embraced. And so, the more that we see see this um, uh, swing to the right in the U.S., the more that progressive voices and democratic voices in the U.S. have to distinguish themselves. Are they going to be true to their, their principles and support human rights and universal principles around the world, including uh, with respect to U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, or are they going to continue to uncritically support Israel? And so that's, that's the opening that I see that's happening in the U.S. now, where more and more you're finding members of Congress willing to speak out about Palestinian human rights issues than you've, we've ever had before. We even have legislation now and that's been um, you know, supported and sponsored in, in the House that concerns Palestinian human rights, uh, specifically for Palestinian children who are being detained uh, by the Israeli military and not having US support. Uh, through security assistance, the detention of Palestinian children. This would have been unthinkable just, I don't know, 10 years ago, even less than 10 years ago, to have some kind of, you know, quote unquote, pro-Palestinian legislation submitted in, in Congress. So I think the more that the U.S. has been swinging right and um, has been embracing sort of this ethno-nationalism around the world, the more people are making connections with, um, you know, Palestinian hum human rights issues and how they intersect with other um, movements across uh, the globe for uh, human rights and human dignity. And sort of on Russia, I think Russia presents a, a really interesting counterbalance to the U.S. Russia has been a more transactional player in, in the Middle East and, um, you know, could, could play a, a role in sort of counteracting some of the damage that's being done uh, with U.S. policy towards Israel-Palestine. I mean, it, we really need to wait and see a bit more, but um, the fact that it is uh, 
it isn't ideological in the, in the same way that the U.S. has been with respect to the Israel-Palestine conflict is really helpful. I think we've, we've just about run out of time. I want to give uh, Dr. Anthony a moment to make some comments about democracy and the rule of law, which he uh, has volunteered to do. Um, I'm going to close out with a quote from Kierkegaard, having started with Camus. People demand freedom of speech in compensation for the freedom of thought they never use. So go forth and think freely. Here's Dr. Anthony again. No. Um, this one issue and its irresolution um, corrodes America's image uh, globally, regionally, uh, sub-regionally, like no other issue uh, of which I'm aware in my lifetime. <laughs> Uh, particularly with respect to so-called democracy or democratization and so-called rule of law. And we've had members of Congress here before to whom we put the question, uh, Congressman, tell us about uh, the Constitution and how you address it pertaining to Palestine. And he paused and he said, the Constitution? No, we don't talk about that much up here. Yeah, but uh, Article 6 in the uh, Constitution, or 8, uh, states that all laws, conventions, and treaties to which the United States is a sovereign signatory are the supreme law of the land. And we are members of the United Nations by treaty. And then the uh, preamble to the United Nations Charter is the uh, stipulation about the inadmissibility of the acquisition of territory by force. Uh, so it's no ambiguity there. And not only have we not upheld that, uh, we have rewarded those who violated it. So uh, when we talk about the rule of law and we want to have relations only with countries that obey and uphold and respect the rule of law, uh, many ask, have you looked in the mirror uh, recently uh, to see that you are close to being the Olympic champion, uh, the violator of rule of law in this manner? And as to democratization, uh, someone can correct any of us if I'm wrong on this, but the U.S. has used the veto in the United Nations Security Council some 75 times, and more than 40 times it's uh, used it to squash the will of the democratic majority, not just the plurality, uh, but the overwhelming majority, uh, 40 times especially to prevent this conflict from being uh, resolved. Uh, Abba Ivan used to make uh, people laugh when he said that uh, the Palestinians have never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. No, one can stand that statement on its head. Uh, the world's sole superpower is the country that's never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity to bring this unjust, heinous, conflict to an enduring, peaceful, and comprehensive settlement. Thank you very much, and thank you to the panel. Let's give them all a round of applause. They did a great job.